live my truth, so I die well. Write a story, time will tell. Coming, Walter, he's coming. No, no, he's coming now. Oh, where am I? You washed up. Sorry? Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the Island Podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. I don't know, Mary. I'm really, I'm not in a good mood today. I'm just kind of confused. I've been thinking about our movement, you know, on the island, WW Shush. When women show up, shit happens, right? Sorry, I could not find WW Shush. Please check your spelling and try again. I know, Mary, it's an acronym. Anyway, but you see, when women show up, shit happens. That was supposed to be good shit, right? Positive, life affirming, empowering shit. Not actual shit. Not crappy, you know, unkind, racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, whitewashing history shit. I mean, it just really... Sorry, I didn't understand the question. No, 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 I know, I know, I know. See, See, this movement was meant for all women. It was meant for any woman. But I'm really struggling with some women right now. I really am. I mean, and it's not about politics. It's not. I, it's about compassion and, and, I don't know, being kind and decent and listening. And, oh, 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 how about the common good? I mean, I don't want to be exclusive and say you can't join our movement unless you think like me. I don't know, maybe I'm naive. But I always thought women had the upper hand, you know, on the compassionate, kind, humane. I'm just looking for women to be humane. I found the Humane Society of the United States. Yeah, no, 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 so that, that's, that's, that's animals, that's animals. Uh, hey, you know what, maybe we should co-op that. How do we start the Humane Society for Women? Sorry, that's a good idea. I could not find the Humane Society for Women. Right, because it does not exist, but I think we need one. And you know what, I'm, I'm not just talking about people in politics. I mean, it's not just about the women in Congress, but okay, let's start there. The gazpacho police. I'm sorry, did you mean the Gestapo police? Yes, exactly, that's exactly what she meant. And the ERA, what is the heck is wrong with these women who are not supporting the ERA? It's in their best interest, give me a break. Oh, I don't know, Mary, maybe there's hope. Is there hope? I guess there's always hope, maybe. The truth is, hope isn't a promise we give, it's a promise we live. Okay, who said that? Amanda Gorman, uh, January 20th, 2022, The New York Times. Okay, I'm going to try to live hope for our WW Shush movement. Did you mean WSHH, World Star Hip Hop? No, Mary, no, I did not mean that. No. Okay, William Shakespeare's Haunted House. No, Mary, no, 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 I didn't mean that either. Or no. www.hushpuppies.com? No, Mary, sometimes I think you're just making stuff up. Or you're just making stuff up. Okay, we've all experienced these insignificant moments that have ended up completely reshaping our lives, right? Right, right, we've all had those, yes. Like, for instance, you're 22, and you've just moved to Chicago, hoping to study improv at Second City, and you're in the elevator of your hotel, and you're on your way to canvas the area for restaurants, maybe hiring waiters, and the whole time you're hearing your mother's voice in your head saying, oh, don't be discouraged, Chicago's a big city, so finding a job might take a little while. 
And then a stranger gets on the elevator and makes a comment about the brand new restaurant on the 21st floor, getting ready for their grand opening. And instead of getting off at the lobby, you push the button for the 21st floor. And 15 minutes later, having never left the building, you have a job. You know, stuff like that. I was asked once, where are you right now? And it changed the course of my life. You see, I came here from Guatemala one summer to participate in a cultural camp. I was the adult companion of two kids who joined in this multicultural exchange with other kids from other parts of the world. I made friends with other chaperones like me from Turkey, the Czech Republic, Singapore, Jamaica. I enjoyed this event so much that I returned a second time. Now, I, I didn't mind the record-breaking hot weather of Minnesota during summer. It was August. Up until that time, those had been the hottest days of my life. Seriously, not even while growing up in Guatemala had I experienced such high temperatures. It was scorching, but the camp was fun. So August was coming to an end. My second time at the camp was wrapping up. And it was time again for me to return home to my job at the radio station where I was the producer of a children's show. Back to my family, my grandma, cousins, plus I had recently bought a brand new car, and I was excited about that. About four days before I was supposed to go back to Guatemala, I went to a gathering where I met a teacher, and she heard me say casually that I used to teach before in my radio gig. I went to school to become a teacher, and, and I taught full-time after graduating one year, but still because I've been acting since I was a kid, the arts pulled me in a different direction. So I got this radio job, which had an educational vibe, sort of Sesame Street on radio, and I was teaching and I was also acting, which I thought it was pretty sweet. Okay, so this uh, teacher from Minnesota, when she heard that I used to be a teacher, she said, You know, there is a huge need for Spanish teachers in St. Paul. You should stay here and teach us. Oh my gosh, that would be so great if you could stay. Stay. <laughs> that was the first time somebody told me that I could stay. <laughs> what a strange idea it seemed to, to live far away from my family. A household of two parents with five happy young adults under the same roof. That was fun. <laughs> and, and why would I decide to live in a place where I don't know anybody and I hardly speak their language? Still, I took the little piece of paper with the phone number she gave me. Okay, so call this number. It's for a program that brings in language teachers from all over the world. I heard from all over the world. And I thought about the cultural camp, and I, I liked that idea. But the idea of staying, like, for how long? It would be a nice option for the future if I wasn't so scared of living alone in an unfamiliar place. But I put the little paper into my pocket. It sent a chill running down my spine just to think about it. But I got curious about what this Minnesota teacher had said about people coming from other countries. So I called the number that she gave me the very next day. 
And it turned out I was calling California. <laughs> I remember I spoke with Judy, and um, she said she was a program director. Right. So we're bringing in teachers from um, other countries and replacing them in schools all across the United States. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. um, how would I apply in the remote case? Yeah. I was interested. <laughs> right. I mean, not, not this year, of uh -huh. course. It's the end of August. <laughs> Bad timing. Plus... I know that classes start next week. Okay, but, but Lily didn't stop you. Where are you right now? I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay, you called me at the right moment because I just hung up from a school principal in St. Paul. They are desperately looking for a Spanish teacher for this year. So are you, are you interested? Huh? I don't know how long I, I took to answer the question, but it was probably a couple of seconds before I said, Sure, I am. Okay, good, good, good. Then go see the principal at St. James and tell her that we sent you, okay? And meanwhile, uh, I'll be faxing the paperwork needed for your work visa at the American Embassy in Guatemala. You said you're going home, right? And then can you come back, like, in two weeks, you know, once all the papers are ready? Uh, sure, mm -hmm. sure, sure, yeah, I can. Okay, mm -hmm. okay, good, mm -hmm. good, good, good. And she probably said other things that I didn't understand because she spoke English and my English was not perfect. It was actually very limited. My head started spinning even before I hung up and it was scary to think that I might have misunderstood the whole thing. I decided to find out if this was true, so I prepared for a job interview and went to see the school principal the next day. Oh, Sylvia! Welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome. I'm gonna give you a tour of the school, okay? okay. So here's the library uh -huh. over here. And then uh -huh. there's the auditorium. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. She gave me a brief tour of the school, and then we went into her office. I remember thinking, okay, I will ask the questions that I wrote down, and I will do my best to answer hers with my imperfect English. I hope we can understand each other well. So, she responded to my questions. Okay, okay. And then she said, yes, great, good. Okay, well, here is your schedule, okay, in your planner. Oh, and here are the keys to the bathroom and the teacher's lounge. And if you could just sign here, good. Oh, I can't tell you how much we have been waiting for you. My knees were shaking. My heart was pounding, but I signed the contract. And it felt good, you know? Everything looked and sounded legit. I saw no red flags. Was it a real school? Yes, yes, it was, it was. Um, how about the teachers? Did you meet the other teachers? Yes, I did, I did. They seem like regular teachers, okay, okay. So, this is happening. Then I remembered, oh wait, I still have to fly back home and tell my parents that I am moving to the warmest place on earth. <laughs> what a shock. Primarily for my grandma. Out of her 28 grandchildren, nobody had left home like that. Well, except those who had already been married, and I was one of the youngest. I was in my early 20s. ¿Qué, qué? Pero, mija, why you want to leave us? And where are you going? Hmm? And I told my grandma, abuela, I had a new job, and that's why I am moving to the U.S. She still wasn't too convinced. I assured her. I wasn't moving too far, it's just the U.S. See, the U.S. is close, you know, right next to our neighbor Mexico, see? But I will be up 
here. <laughs> and I pointed to Minnesota on the map. <gasps> Keke? Haji? You mean all the way up there? Are you gonna live in Canada? <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, almost. Yeah, it did feel very, very, very far, far, far. My two final weeks at home in Guatemala went very, very fast. I was able to sell the car, quit the job, go to the embassy, get all the paperwork, and I came back to Minnesota with only but a suitcase. And no place to stay. But I figured I'd find something. Maybe I'll meet a nun at the school who will offer me a tiny room in a convent that is mostly empty. And actually, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years, I'm still here. I am so glad I got the little piece of paper with the phone number. I love it here. Although, moving to the warmest place on earth? <laughs> that was a little off. Well, no, it was way, way off. <laughs> It's only fair if I open this poem with a lesson. It doesn't matter if it fits in the line. It matters if you remember it. You always said that every year I owed it to myself to watch the sun rise on the east and set on the west, that everything worth keeping in this life I would find between those two sets. It's been a while since I've talked about you. It's not like I've forgotten. I mean, I layered the letters in your name between the vowels in my daughter, so even in moments I can't speak on it, I'm calling you in. On the day you graduated to the ancestral plane, I could see the pressure in your fingertips. You were holding on for me, trying to get me to see that there was a love story in returning to that from which you came. You called it your first door, the home where the mortgage is only paid in time. And as much as I love a good metaphor, this home misses you. Nothing is the same without you here, and grief hardly ever rhymes. You told me resets are good. So I slept through several days waiting for the moment that new beginnings would feel okay. I'll never call you a liar. My roots are too Southern for that. You were telling a story. One so good, I still can't figure out the point, so I haven't put it down and I haven't let it go. You know that though. You pop up in between moments and spaces only I can see our little corner, the world we made for ourselves, the unpoppable bubble, my never ending visitor. I see you often in my daughter's side eye and in my son's stubbornness. I want you to know that I became the type of parent who encourages this. These babies have voices. Just like the one you helped me dig out of myself, they are master sculptors at just seven and eight, so clear about their roots, the flowers, the garden we made, and they didn't get a chance to meet you while you were on this plane, but I know you caught them in passing. I can smell your essence in their spirits, the only place you would ever be okay with hiding. I often think about the day we met, a happenstance, the misreading of a sign, a barging into my dressing room, my universe untwisting a little. Thank God you didn't get those glasses fixed or you would have missed me in your blind spot. And I don't know what made me drop the bricks in my hand, but thank God muscle memory failed me or maybe it didn't, I am always losing things and finding new ones. We were like tree and apple. You didn't care whose limbs gave birth to me, who dropped me, who left me in the field wandering where the bruises came from. You were grateful for my relationship with the soil. That made you far more familiar than DNA could ever have. And I would say I could see through you, but in fact, I could only see into you and I never wanted to go further than that. I only wanted the door in, just like the one you found on my skin. It took a while for me to feel my breath again 
to figure out the pieces that losing you redacted, but you taught me to always walk through the door, so I started looking for you by doing just that, and I would say that you wouldn't believe where it led me, but you saw too far ahead for that. If the first door was my beginning, then the second was my classroom, the third was the one on every heart of every young person who ever trusted me, and the fourth was my children, the best door I've ever had. Door five gave me a godson, the brightest of my lights. His door, like mine, was an accidental discovery between glasses. I inherited your sight, and I know you had something to do with this. You always said lessons don't become yours until you put your twist on them, and while I never added more than MID, it worked out for what came next. He was born in the East and settled in the Midwest. I pushed my son to rise just as sure as the sun sets. That that's my apple. I don't care which tree he came from. I would tell you I taught him the beauty of the soil, but he came to me a garden. You always said I deserved my flowers while I could smell them, so I fell in love with the gardener and started my garden. I have to believe that one day, the door I open will lead me back to you. But until then, I'll search for your essence in everything I do, because apples never roll far from the trees they belong to. Maybe the door is in the soil. Maybe I need to lay in the grass. Whatever the lesson is, I'll put my twist on it. It doesn't matter if it fits right now. It matters that I remember it. Brittany Delaney. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you, thank you. And thank you to Sylvia Pontaza for her adorable story about the phone number. Our musical guest today is Ivory Dublet. Come on up, Ivory. She's an actor, singer, teaching artist. And Ivory, you grew up singing gospel, mm -hmm. right? Yes, With a family yes. quartet, right? Called the CV Gospel Quartet. CV, yes. CV. CV. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's you and your sister Linnea, uh -huh. who's right over here. There you go. And your sister Danielle oh. and your mom Robin. That's correct. Okay. So, do you have a favorite? song that you sing mm. as the quartet or one that's like award-winning or oh, where everybody stands up and cheers and throws things yeah. and yeah. something okay give me a little give us oh, a little God. give us a little smidge okay i don't feel no waste time i've come too far from where i started from Nobody told me that the road would be easy And I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me <laughs> Thank you. I think we just had a happenstance that changed our course of our lives that happened right now. Oh my God, that was just gorgeous. That was just gorgeous. Um, you're gonna sing a song right now called We Are One, and it was written by Timothy Levy for the exciting project celebrating women activists, protests, revolutionary rock opus. And for those of you listening in the podcast, more information about protests will be included in the show notes for this episode. So now, here is Ivory Doublet. Zippy Lasky and our male ally Tim Carroll singing We Are One.
the heavens Walking this earth Our lives are connected And we all have worth I won't be silent When I know I should speak And I'll be your beacon When you're hitting rough I'm fighting for freedom For a world unafraid For every inequality Every color, every shade I won't be divided By the pain waters flow because the future's in our hands we are one oh we are one oh we are one oh we are one Regardless of what has happened to this very moment in time, I believe it's my duty to let healing waters flow from me. In fact, I want to be healing waters. I want to flow over our hurting and our vulnerable world. And, and I want the healing waters of me to spill a little and mix with the healing waters of you. And we'll keep flowing and flowing and healing and healing. We are one. Oh, we are one. Yes, we are. We are one. Oh, we are one. I choose to be civil and swallow my pride. I want you to know that. If your skin ain't like mine, that it doesn't matter. We're all in this race. The race to be human for the rest of our days. We're fighting for freedom.
Ivory and Zippy and Tim. Thank you, thank you. Now please help me welcome our special guest for the conversation, Carolyn Holbrook. Come on up, Carolyn. Hi, Carolyn. Sue, hi. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I know, we got patio furniture up here. Hey, it works. I know, it's like we can lean on our arms and everything. Okay, so you are the founder and director of More Than a Story. More Than a Single Story. More Than a Single Story, very important actually. Um, a series of community conversations for BIPOC writers and, and arts activists, right? Mm -hmm. You are the founder and artistic director of Sassy. Sassy, The Right Place. The Right Place. You are the author of countless books and anthologies, which includes your memoir, which is a Minnesota Book Award winning memoir. Tell me your names and I will testify. You are the co-editor of the newly published essay collection from black and indigenous writers. Um, co-authored with David Mira called We Are Meant to Rise that just came out this last November. You're the first. The, uh, the subtitle too, We Are Meant to Rise, Voices for Justice from Minneapolis to the World. Wow, okay. And that, those two books will be for sale after the, after the show. You were the first person of color to serve in a leadership position at the Literary Loft Center. Mm -hmm. The first person of color to win the Minnesota Book Awards K. K. Sexton Award. You teach creative writing at the Loft Literary Center at Hamlin University and at community venues around the area. And you are the mother of five. Mother of five. Grandmother of eight. Grandmother of eight. And great-grandmother of two. Yes, two beautiful little bitty oh. great-granddaughters. Okay, so here's what I want to know. I mean, here's what I think what everybody wants to know. The title of your memoir, mm -hmm. Tell Me Your Names and I Will Testify, is from a poem by Lucille Clifton. Now. Brittany's gonna read the excerpt of the poem that is in your book, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, go ahead, Brittany. Nobody mentioned slaves, and yet the curious tools shine with your fingerprints. Nobody mentioned slaves, but somebody did this work, who had no guide, no stone, who molders under rock. Tell me your names. Tell me your bashful names, and I will testify. Yeah. So, what brought you to, uh, you're on a mission. You're on a mission to tell stories. And what brought you to that poem in particular as far as, just initially, what brought you to that particular poem? I think what brought me to that was, um, I was my youngest daughter sitting over there. She was 16. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just, before you go on, if you can, can you get the mic a little bit more towards your? Okay. There. Is that better? Yeah. All right. Can y'all hear me now? Okay. <laughs> so your youngest daughter, Ebony, who's right over here. Yeah, and that's my oldest granddaughter, too. My youngest daughter, my oldest my granddaughter. granddaughter. Oh, right. cheers. Them, them's my peeps. <laughs> so she had gone out somewhere, you know, 16-year-olds go out and hang out with their buds. And um, I was home, really tired after a long day of meetings and all this kind of stuff. So it was whatever year Sleepless in Seattle came out because that's what I popped in the VHS player, so that tells you it was some time ago, right? And I felt this cold breeze come in. I said, wait a minute, I thought I closed everything. But then I looked up and there's this ancestor, this person standing there dressed in these beautiful Victorian outfit. You know, she had on this hat with a plume and she had a man standing next to her holding on to her, you know? And she looked at me and she said, I am Liza. 
I don't think I've ever talked about this. I wrote it, but I haven't talked about it. She, yeah, she said, I am Liza. You have to tell our story. And then she was gone, just like that, man. That really happened. It's like, whoa. And um, you know, I started thinking, how in the hell am I going to do that? What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And um, you know, I started thinking about her and all my other ancestral mothers, the people that, you know, like what Brittany read about in her poem, and all of the folks way back. I came across Lucille Clifton's poem, and I thought, wow, I think that's it. You know, our names have to be told. Our stories have to be told. And I just wanted to join the others, you know, who are telling our stories. This isn't the first time you've had a ghostly visitation from, a, from family members. So this is something that happens to you or has, has happened to you often. It happens, yeah. Yeah. But I think what was interesting that is you were saying uh, the other people who have visited you or come to you in some form, you knew who they were. Mm-hmm. This is the first time you didn't know who this person was. Right, and it's also the first time I received a command from one of the ancestors. Yeah. yeah. And then you eventually mm-hmm. find out who she is. Mm-hmm. You find out who Liza is. Well, I, I asked my, um, my cousin who's a genealogist and my stepmother who was also a genealogist if they had come across anyone named Liza in their research, and they both did on both sides of my family. Because I think that, you know, Liza and Eliza are fairly common names in the slave era. And um, so they both found somebody. Um, and then when my mother passed away, and my stepfather had passed away some years before, and I moved back into her house for about a year to, you know, put her stuff together and close things out. And I came across this picture mm. of this woman that was the, the same, same woman. Person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, okay, what do I do with this stuff, you yeah. know? Wow, okay. Um, I want to go back to your childhood a little bit. Let's go back in time, now that the lights are telling us to change the subject, so. <laughs> it's time to change the subject. Maybe it's a visitation. Okay. Yeah, um, there you, go. <laughs> you say that creativity was not encouraged uh, when you were little, and that you were sometimes chided uh, for daydreaming if you were caught reading or maybe writing a poem. Uh, I think my parents were just afraid that you know I wouldn't be able to take care of myself okay. unless I took a traditional yeah. path. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I, it, it was about protecting me. Sure. It wasn't oh, sure. anything. I don't feel bad about it. I understand it. No, I think mm-hmm. so. They, they were trying to uh, encourage you to find some sort of career and you know, the arts. I'm sorry, you're gonna do what? Um, yeah, it was that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the arts are what, yeah. But then in eighth grade, you, you meet Miss Johnson. You say she creates a, a, she lights a spark in you. Tell us about Miss Johnson yeah, and what you know, she did. Yeah, well, I spent most of my time in high school in the principal's office, but my eighth grade English teacher, she kind of saw beyond that. She saw that there was somebody in there and she, she encouraged me to write poetry. And, um, you know, she read my poems and really, you know, encouraged me. Yeah. Yeah, and um, that... And that made a difference. Made a huge difference. Yeah. So did you feel like then, then maybe heading into the arts or dealing with the arts or appreciating the arts was something that felt right to you? Felt like this was a... I think it always felt right to me, even yeah. before then. You know, I mean, my parents were business people. 
my mother had a beauty salon and then they had a beauty school. And my stepfather was the first black auditor in the uh, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, but he was also a musician. I mean, he played the hell out of that left-handed guitar of his. So, you know, I mean, creativity was definitely in my family, but they were just wanting to make sure, sure. that, you know, that find something to fall back on kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. You know? Speaking of all of that, so you're 16 and you fall for a boy who is exciting and risky and from a different neighborhood. And the kind of boy that we all fell for, right? When we were younger, the kind the of risky, boy. Mm-hmm. kind of risky ones that our parents didn't like so much. Yeah. But the relationship spirals into some illegal activity and you end up incarcerated in the Minnesota Home School for Girls in Sock Center. And there it's discovered that you're pregnant. So, because you have this heart. Wow, so you really read my book, I didn't do. you? <laughs> I prep, I stalk, I do everything. Um, but because you have a heart murmur, you're moved to the Minnesota University Hospital to serve out your sentence in a maternity ward. And your, your parents and the social worker are convinced that you should give the, the child up for adoption. There's another choice, right? There's the other choice, which they're not keen on, but that's what you want to do. To keep my baby. Right. Yeah. But in the meantime, because you have to serve out the sentence, your kid would go into foster care until you're 18. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Now, speaking of happenstance moments, as, as some of the stories that we're telling today, there's a moment in your book that strikes me as one of those moments that could life could have gone this way or that way because of this very, what seemed insignificant at the time, loomed large. So you have a shared room in this hospital, and one of your roommates passes her time while she's waiting to have her baby knitting. And you had never knitted before. You had never seen knitting before. And so you're curious. You ask the occupational therapist if they would teach you. So here's where I'm getting to. So there's the day that the grumpy social worker, who is convinced that you should put your child up for adoption, and has a lot of power over that decision. You describe her as having this really heavy walk. You could always tell when she was coming, oh, here she comes, that she never looked at you at her weekly visits, kind of always dismissed you, kind of looked past you. And so there you are, you're knitting, and she asks you what you're knitting, you're saying, booties for my baby. And there's a long pause, and you see a softness, and she says, why don't we go with foster care? We'll go with foster care. And to me, it's like, do you think that's the first time she saw you? Oh, I know it is, absolutely. As human, as a mother-to-be, as all those things that she hadn't seen you that's before? That's the first time she actually really saw me, yes. Yeah. And I think that's significant because then at that point, when you're 18, you do get Stevie, your firstborn, as you call him. And it could have gone all sorts of different ways. And the knitting, you know, who would think that the knitting would have that little moment in this woman's mind who seriously needed to be in the humane society of women. Anyway, um, she had that moment of, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is, this is a real loving person that real I didn't Real life see human being, yeah, not just a, right. you know, whatever she thought. Okay, so you do your sentence, you, get, you, you reunite with your son, Stevie, and you go from being a single mother to entering into an, a marriage that turns out to be very abusive. You eventually get out of that. And there's a short-term relationship with an old boyfriend that didn't work out so well, or wasn't meant to be, maybe, as we say. So now you're in Minnesota, you're single again, and you're the mother of five. 
and you're living on assistance and you're dealing with severe bouts of depression. Tell me about that. Tell me about the depression as far as, um, I mean, oh, duh, overwhelmed, uh, maybe mixed with trauma, mixed with what do I do now? Um, tell me about that. Yeah, I, I think you pretty much described it. Um, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? You're, yeah. You know, you're suddenly realize that you have five children. Um, you, you know, you're broke, you're poor, you don't know what the heck to do. Yeah. Um, I remember when I would, I would send my kids off to school and I would just lay on the floor all day until I could just... I'm just going to do this. Sorry. Was, yeah. yeah. And, until, I'm sorry, say lay on the floor again. Yeah. yeah, until it was time for them to come home. Um, and then, you know, somehow I found myself, my way out of that, I decided, you know, that um, when I was in high school, you know, back then they, they didn't encourage black girls to, you know, to become college ready, but they did teach us how to do things like secretarial skills, and I was pretty good at that. Yeah. So I bought myself a typewriter. Ebony, do you remember my pink typewriter? It was a pink typewriter? It was pink. <laughs> really? I, I rented a typewriter. I put an ad in the Minnesota Daily that I was available to type papers. So I started typing papers at home, and then I made enough money to buy myself a typewriter. But I also, you know, it was just really important to me to teach my kids that just because we're living like this now doesn't mean that it has to be our forever sentence. Right. I taught them how to type. I taught them how to proofread. We had a little business going on. Sounds like At it. home. In our little raggedy apartment in the Whittier neighborhood, not too far from here. And so then that leads to, um, you start journaling, and then you start writing a weekly column for your neighborhood paper, the Whittier Globe. The title of your column is called Diary of a Single Mother by Beatrice Mullins. Correct. So where does Beatrice Mullins come from? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> the thing was that, you know, in order to stay sane, I started writing these these little stories about the funny things that my kids did. And, you know, kids, are they can be hilarious. You know, they drive you absolutely crazy. But then they say and do these things that are, like one of my, my middle daughter, I'll never forget one day, she said, Mom, are black kid gloves for black kids? Oh, oh. <laughs> that's a really good question. Are black that's really kid good. gloves it for totally, black kids? It totally makes sense to a, to a little girl. That would have been a, a good marketing thing, actually. Oh, hey. Hey, if there's any marketers in the room besides what? my granddaughter, yeah, keep that one. That's, that's good. You know? So uh, the column is based on your personal stories, but because you said it was written by Beatrice Mullins, was there a little fictionalizedness going on? No, no fiction. It was just that I wanted to protect my identity yeah, and the sure. identities of my kids. Right. So I asked them all to name themselves. Ebony was Jasmine. She was so little then. I think I might have named her. Did I name you Jasmine or did you tell me? I don't remember. But the others... The others gave themselves names. You know, my oldest daughter, Tess's mom, called herself Athena. So, you know, these stories by Beatrice Mullins about Jasmine, Athena, Kwanzae, uh, which is my youngest son, um, and, I, and Natalie, and uh, I don't remember um, Stevie's name at that time. But yeah, they named themselves so I could write about the real life well, stories. Without and you, and you won awards. Mm -hmm. You won awards. Yeah. Several yeah. years in a row, you won awards. I did. Okay, so that also leads into more activities that you're doing at the Whittier Center. And then at one point, you asked the head of the center if um, he would be open to offering writing classes because you would really like to take writing classes. 
So he eventually says yes. And by way of your typing on your pink typewriter in your business, you type a, a manuscript for the poet, Natalie Goldberg, and she ends up teaching the first class. Correct. And this starts you on your path of organizing writers' workshops, while at the same time, you are taking all these classes yourselves, and you, you found the, you start the Whittier's Writers' Workshop, or as you call it, W3. Right. <laughs> and uh, you became the first person of color in leadership with the Loft Literary Center. But you talk about that being a challenging situation. Eventually, you had a good, have, had, had a good relationship with the Loft, but at that time, it was challenging. Are you up for sharing a little bit about? Oh my goodness, We yeah. don't have to name names. You already named the name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. Yeah, you know, after I had been working, doing my own thing at, at Whittier for nearly nine years and, you know, uh, not earning a living at it, you know, um, I decided, well, maybe it's time I get a real job. And uh, this position became open at the loft and they had been trying to recruit me anyway because our little program at Whittier Park was was really in competition with them because a lot of people were coming to our little program and going to the loft. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, why not? What the heck? So they recruited me and I went. It was challenging. I stayed there five years, which was probably longer than I should have stayed because I realized not very long after I started that my values were very, very different from theirs. It was very important for me to be, you know, to have programming that's accessible. My daughter keeps telling me to put the mic to my mouth. She's so bossy. I, I, I appreciate it. We all get prompts. I've got my husband's back here. He's the one that's turning the lights on and off. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I would clarify that. No, no, I've clarified that. We're having some little technical glitch, which we have no idea it is. He's the one that's turning them back on. Okay, well, that's good. So he is saving that every time they go off and they go back on, he's saving the day. We know that, that Ron's yeah. back here. He's, he's saving the day. So we've got all the time you see somebody going like this, it's my daughter saying, put the mic to your mouth, woman. Is there anything else? Anybody over here wants to signal us? Is there something we're missing over here? But, I, you know, I, the, deal, the deal was, and sometimes I think still is, although things are better in some ways, um, the loft was very white, and um, you know, and a, a lot of times organizations that want to become diverse or claim they do, they figure, wow, you know, we'll get a we'll get a dark person in here, and that means we're diverse. Done. We're done. You're done. done. Boom. Done and done. But yeah. they don't realize that your values, your way of life, your way of thinking, being, seeing is different from theirs. You're supposed to come in and you know, join the club. Yeah. And. There were so many challenges during those five years that um, I eventually, I missed my first granddaughter's birth because I had just left the loft because I was so sick I couldn't stand it anymore and I really got physically ill. Yeah. But we're, we're super buddies. <laughs> yeah, so with that, times have changed, exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, you later, uh, well while you're founding things all around town, you create Sassy, mm -hmm. the right place. Mm -hmm. so, Sassy, S-A-S-E. It means self-addressed stamped envelope. You know, if you join a contest, you send a self-addressed stamped envelope, and now that everything's online, maybe things are different. But you know, if you get that back, it means you lost. So we just did a twist on that and called it S-A-S-E and called it Sassy. Yeah. I stayed at the loft six months longer than I should have. You know, I, re I resigned and they talked me into staying six months and I said, okay. 
But during those six months, people were calling and people were sort of recognizing that I was leaving. And they kept asking me, are you gonna start another organization? I kept saying, no, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Oh, no, no problem. I said shit earlier, remember? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> shit happened. We're, yeah, we're all so. good with shit. Everybody go with shit? <laughs> Who says bad words? See, see, who said bad words? Did your hand go up that time? Okay. <laughs> now she tells the truth. <laughs> good, we got her. Um, so you, so you founded Sassy, and you're writing books, you're teaching, you're giving readings. But I where... gotta tell you about the origins of Sassy. Oh yeah, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. No, but... I got so busy with all the bad words thing. I got I lost right. my place. Yes, tell us and more about Ron Sassy. I'm trying to turn the lights off on us when we say bad words, right? <laughs> no, he's trying to. Yeah, make. Oh, oh there you go. See. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I left the loft. I left the loft, and then people, you know, I I started the the day after the day after I got well after missing my grandbaby's childbirth, I just felt really good. So I just started going back to people and saying, do you really want to help me start another organization? They said yes. So we had this meeting and, you know, um, figured out what a new organization for writers would look like. And it was a very diverse group of people and it was just a beautiful little meeting. Two days after that, my neighbor, Lynn, called me and she said, you know, I saw the Whittier Writers Workshop in, uh, unclaimed property in the Star Tribune. Oh, I said, oh, right. really? So I went down to unclaimed property, and there was a check for $5,000 that had been sitting there for five years. Speaking of divine intervention yes. and weird people coming and yeah. weird, you know, so I used that to change the name from Whittier Writers Workshop to Sassy the Right Place and to start this little organization. Wow. And did you know? Yes, yes. Did you know where the, was it an anonymous gift or was it a grant or was it? Was, it? it was a grant from a funder okay. <laughs> that somehow I had either missed or forgotten about or something. But you found it at the right time. Exactly yeah, the right exactly. time, yeah. Okay, so you're, you're writing these books and you're teaching and um, there's this one this story you tell in the book, you're invited to do a reading at a bookstore and you invite members of a, another writing group that you've started called uh, Twin Cities Black Women Writing and you invite them to read as well, along with you, and tell stories. And during a Q&A session, an audience member expresses surprise that all your stories are so different. Wow, yeah, you know, there's wow. like five black women here, and they're not all telling the same story. Wow, wow, It's like, strange. damn, did she really say that? And I thought, whoa, I gotta do something about that. And a couple of years later, I got a state arts board grant for writing. And, um, you know, part of that grant was that you had to do something in the community. And I didn't want to just give a reading. I wanted to do something that would have, that would be meaningful and have some impact. So I thought, well, I think I'll just have a panel of black women writers and just show people how different we all are. But by the time my daughter and I got through naming different people, she's a hairstylist, so she knows a whole lot of folks because they're coming to her salon all the time. But there were so many people that could have been on that panel that we ended up doing three. One with African-American women, one with women with Caribbean backgrounds, and, and the third with um, East and West African women. And for each one, the hall was packed. And so I oh my goodness, I gotta do something about this. So that was the origin of more than a single story, which yeah. is going into its seventh year. And we have all kinds of, of, of um, panel discussions with people from all the BIPOC communities discussing issues that are important to us um, that are generally um, suggested by people in the community. Yeah, mm -hmm. is, no, that's just terrific. You 
you talk about storytelling as being healing, as a way to come clean, uh, as a way to liberate oneself. I watched a panel discussion you did um, on Zoom with the Eastside Freedom Library. And at one point, you denounced very strongly the myth of the strong black woman. And you were talking about, and you and your other panelists were talking about that myth doesn't allow black women to feel or to be vulnerable or to feel vulnerable or to show vulnerability. Um, more on that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm, we are seen as being invulnerable, not having feelings. Um, black men are seen as being big and scary, even if they're skinny and stupid. Yeah. They're still seen as big and scary. <laughs> black women are seen as not having feelings. And, you know, and having this around us of the strong black woman thing just denies us of, of our own humanity, right. our vulnerability, our, you know, ability to just be who we are yeah. without having to, you know, ooh, I could just go on about that. But I think that's really interesting as far as the expectation that um, there's a sense of strength there. And then there's also the racial element of it, right? There's that sense of, or is there that sense of, I have to try harder than that because of how our society has set itself up, which is not pleasant. Well, there's that, and there's also just, um, you know, the expectation that you are something that you're not. Yeah. You know, um, I can't speak for any other black woman on earth, but I know that for me, when I walk into a room, I scan it right away. See who else in this room is dark, yeah. and also because I'm left-handed, I see who else is left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and try to, the, the temperature of the room will sort of tell me, okay, so who can I be today? Yeah. You know, can I ever just be me? Yeah, right. You know, my granddaughter wrote this beautiful essay oh. about financial trauma oh. because we talk about intergenerational trauma all the time, but we hardly ever talk about that little aspect of it, how it affects us and our ability to deal in the world financially. It was published in the Women's Press a couple of years ago. And um, they said it was the most read article that year because people could really relate to that. Wow. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I have to go look that up. Yeah. It's in uh, We Are Meant to Rise. It is in so Me Are Meant to Rise. It's in We Are Meant to Rise. You yes. can buy it and then you can mm -hmm. read it and then and she's right here and then you can talk to her. Is there something you wanted to say? She Tess? said, Stop What's... telling people. Oh. It's too late. Too late. And she says bad words now. So yeah, that's I... two things we've learned about her today. Um, I don't want, there's a story, I don't want to give away all the stories in your book, but there's a story that, um, there's a short excerpt uh, from your book that um, Sylvia's going to read. But to set this up, you're taking part in a poetry class video project at Lakewood Cemetery. And it has to do with, uh, um, the project is this, uh, the, cr the creation at least from this white classmate is she's going to be roller skating through Lakewood Cemetery and it's being videotaped because that's the assignment. And she gets to the older part of the cemetery and she points out a beautifully sculpted age statue. And she proclaims, she said, it's the statue of a black woman. If you touch her, you'll die. And then go skating off. 
And you talk about feeling stabbed in the heart. And I think you were sort of blindsided by, because you weren't sure where this roller skating through the cemetery as a poetry project was going, right? So it was kind of a surprise. Tell me yeah, about these that. surprises just happen all the time, every day, in some way or another. And yeah, it was like, oh my God, this is how people see black women. Yeah. If you touch her, you'll die. Yeah. After that, you go on and, and you start to talk about your own daughters. And Sylvia's going to read this excerpt from your, from your book. I have three beautiful, intelligent daughters. I have had to help them maintain their self-images over and over again even as I've attempted to heal my own. I also fully understand the horrors of what is happening to our young men. I have a son who was incarcerated for 10 years in the federal penitentiary. But there seems to be a conspiracy of silence around our girls and women. Could it be that in large part of our incarceration, it's invisible that we are locked up in our bodies? Like countless black mothers, I have worked hard to train my daughters to be proud of who they are in a world that would have them be ashamed of their darkness. For black women, loving ourselves and passing that self-love down to our daughters and granddaughters is a difficult task. Centuries of negation often makes us feel like we need to adopt a hard protective shell, which is either praised as strength or dismissed as hostility. In short, we turn ourselves into stone. That's, yes. I have to tell you this music that's playing, um, which you'll hear in a little bit as well, when Carol and I were talking, I said, is there some sort of music that speaks to you or you know, for transitions for some of these excerpts we were gonna do? And you said, you know, my sons are musicians, I'll ask them what song uh, reminds them of their mom, of her. And one of the songs was Stevie Wonder's A Place in the Sun, which is what Zippy is playing. Um, it's beautiful. Okay, so in that excerpt, you talk about the horrors happening to young black men as well. Can I ask you about Amir Locke and the gorgeous athletes who have been recently killed? I and am speechless. I am just, it just keeps happening. Right. I just can't stand it. It's just awful. I mean, I, imagine yourself just being startled out of your sleep. Right. You know? I mean, the cop's going to say something, I hate to protect my life, or some BS like that, you know? Yeah. But this kid who had nothing to do with what happened or why they were in there, yeah. you know, he's, he's gone just for nothing. Right. And he, if you see the, I mean, the, the videos that they show over and over and over again, I mean, they startled him out of sleep. He, he picks up his gun, which he has a legal right to carry because he's a delivery man. You know, there's always the yeah. potential he can be robbed. But he's holding the gun down. He ain't holding it at that cop. Here's what I want so to know is... don't even get me started on that. Where is the NRA to stand up for that rightfully owned gun? Where are you? You people say, oh, Second Amendment, and this kid was 
proper, I mean, had all the proper papers and license and training and all that kind of stuff. Not a freaking peep. Not a freaking peep. Not a freaking they peep. never speak up about things like this. No, they which should. Which happen too often, too much. Yeah. Did you just drop the mic? Did you just do like an Obama drop the mic? <laughs> She's done, that's it. She's a Obama out, oh, broke out. Yeah. <laughs> no. Of course, he, he didn't start it, but he, he's the one we think of now when we think of Drop the Mic, right? Um, you're working on your first novel. Mm-hmm. Now, you told me when you were working on it earlier, your protagonist, Pepper, was a prostitute. So tell us about where this novel is, what's happening with this novel? Well, um, it's in the very, very early stages. Um, you know, when I started working on it some 20, 30 years ago, I was trying to find my way out of the abusive marriage, and that was one way to do it, was to create my alter ego, who turned out to be a prostitute who was able to do things I could never do. She could kill him. <laughs> yeah, there you go, right, you know? right, um, yeah. But yeah, the, the novel in, is, is in its very early stages now, and it's still um, pretty much the same story, but with different people. Yeah. The pro- it's got three protagonists. None of them are prostitutes. <laughs> yeah. It has to do with the Man, the penal system, the medical system, you know, and how, how they have really kind of messed over my people <laughs> since 16, 19, yeah. um, and it continues. What's interesting to me is you talked about sort of your first foray into writing, or what you thought might be your first foray into writing, was fiction. And now all these years, decades, writing workshops and telling your own story and this and that and encouraging everybody else to tell their story and hearing our stories. And now that you're going back uh, or revisiting the idea of, of fiction, is that something where it feels new and fresh to do that or different? Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But it's also, you know, when I revisited the novel, it was because I kind of discovered that I wasn't done telling my story. Yeah. Um, but I was done writing memoir. <laughs> Is there more that you feel you can reveal through the fiction lens that maybe you can't through nonfiction? In different ways. Yeah. You know, and speaking of visitations and stuff, I started working on one of the one of the protagonists is the young woman's. Uh, okay, the main protagonist is a young woman who witnessed um, her mother kill her father after being abused for so many years, and she just lost it one day, and and she ends up in prison. Um, and uh, the second protagonist is her aunt, who continues raising her and her siblings. And as I'm writing in the aunt's voice, it starts to sound familiar. And there's words and there's things that this woman is saying. And it turns out it's my sister who died in 1992. Oh. So she's here. Yeah. And, you wow. know, it's like she's got something to say and I'm listening. Wow. Yeah. And the third protagonist is the mother that's in prison. She just writes letters. Wow. And again, it's in the very early stages, so you ain't going to see it for a while yet. We're, we're looking forward to it, though. Okay, last, last thing. Your nickname is Slam Granny. One of your nicknames. You may have others. But one of your nicknames is Slam Granny. And um, where this comes from is while you were the director at Sassy, you were asked to become a sponsor of the National Poetry Slam. And this was five days in Minneapolis in the year 2000, and it was a big hit. And 65 teams from all over the country competing. You were also responsible for bringing in Paul Flores mm-hmm. in 2003, who was the founder of Youth Speaks 
and started the Youth Slam series called Brave New Voices. One of the products of that Youth Slam series is with us today, Brittany Delaney. So almost 20 years ago uh, in St. Paul Central High School as a freshman, you brought Youth Speaks to us. Um, I was, I went on to be one of the most repeated team members and eventually the coach that catapulted me into my life as an arts educator, saved me from an abusive home, gave me my voice. Um, that led me to being a curriculum consultant and now the executive director of Black Table Arts Cooperative. So I thank you. I am because you are. I just thought the connection was, uh, was just fascinating. It's like all that you're doing, and here's a product, and look at how amazing We're she is. We're celebrating 20 years in September in yeah. this work. Amazing, wow. Yeah. And I've asked Brittany, uh, more than last reading, I've asked Brittany to read a piece of, from an essay that you have in the collection that you co-edited with um, David Muir from We Are Meant to Rise. So Brittany's gonna read this. I love the word tending. It implies kindness, compassion, and remaining steadfast in the face of injustice. It shows that we change the world through our everyday actions, rather those actions are teaching, writing, or daily passage of our life experiences down to the next generation. That tending is often quiet. While others are making their voices heard, healing is taking place quietly and steadfastly. I recently saw an anonymous quotation that has been sticking with me. Sometimes it's not about the act of praying or what you think or say when you pray. Sometimes it's about what you learn while you are waiting for the answer. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn Holbrook. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Sue. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you, thank you. That's our show. That's our show. I'm going to thank again Carolyn Holbrook. Thank you again, Carolyn, please. And uh, Brittany Delaney. Yes. And Ivory Dublet. And uh, Sylvia Potaza. And Tim Carroll for helping us out. And of course, Zippy Lasky over here. And thank you so much to Dieter Poppin for filling in for our engineer, Catherine, who couldn't be here today, and our assistant, uh, Michaela Finnegan. And thank you to Nick Wahlberg for stepping in. For We had a sudden loss of our dear longtime lighting guy, Barry Browning. God bless you, Barry. Maybe you were trying to speak to us today about the lighting. I don't know. We're trying, Barry. We're trying. And thank you to Sarah Erdman for taking our pictures and Suzanne Egley and, and Carolyn Denton and the wonderful staff here at the Women's Club. Okay, everybody, we'll be back next month with another live Island of Discarded Women. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you. Thank you.